All right, now that we've looked at all the, the historical points about the binding of Isaac, this Akhadah, and this beautiful movement of faith uh, that Abraham has and Isaac along right with him, this is the climactic event of Abraham's life, but we want to look at it deeper. Because if you remember, flip back a page, on the bottom of page two of your notes, I gave you that quote from your commentary, their Catholic introduction to the Old Testament, which says this, it's bottom page two, seen in the full light of the New Testament and the living tradition, we discover that God does not desire the death of Isaac, right? Well, we saw all of that. But he does desire for Abraham and Isaac to enact within salvation history the kind of self-sacrificial donation that God himself, as a trinity of persons, will carry out in order to bring about the salvation of mankind, end quote. So we talked about all of that as we were going through the story, but now let's see, what are we talking about here? What does it mean to enact within salvation history this self-donation of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? And that's this typological approach. And many people have pointed out various elements of this, of how Isaac... Now, the story of Isaac is a beautiful pre-enactment of Jesus, but I kid you not, there really is no story in the Old Testament that more beautifully uh, foreshadows Calvary. And in fact, this event of the binding of Isaac is known as the Calvary of the Old Testament. Many people have called it that. The Calvary of the Old Testament is here with the story of Abraham and Isaac, and it amazingly pre-enacts as a prophecy in words and in deeds the Calvary of the New Testament, Jesus offering himself up along with the Father for the salvation of mankind, okay? So there's, as a recap here, now that we know the story, let's go through and see all the various typological connections uh, because it's more than just Abraham offering up his son. There is that. So I'll recap all of this and you'll find various lists of these typological points and various commentaries. Uh, hopefully I've presented this in a particular way so you can really get the whole flow of it. So number one here in your notes, uh, both uh, Isaac and Jesus are conceived miraculously, right? Uh, Sarah is old and she's barren, and then Mary is a virgin. So usually old, barren women don't bear children, and virgins typically never bear children as well. So both Isaac and Jesus are both born and conceived, I should say, miraculously, okay? Number two, both are called explicitly the only begotten or only beloved son of the father, as we discussed earlier. So three times Isaac is called the only begotten son or only beloved son of Abraham. And of course, we know Jesus is called the only begotten and only beloved son of God the father. Now you've got the baptism, the transfiguration, and then of course, John 3.16, everybody knows that if you've gone, if you've gone to a sporting event, somebody is holding up a placard that says, John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So both are called explicitly the only beloved son. So that means that Abraham is a type of God the Father and Jesus is a type, or I should say Isaac is a type of Jesus. But what about the Holy Spirit? Because as the commentary had pointed out, this is a pre-enactment of the self-donation of all three persons of the Trinity. So a lot of people don't clarify this, but the Holy Spirit is in the presence of the fire of the sacrifice because the Holy Spirit is often depicted in the scriptures as fire. Think of Pentecost, right? The Holy Spirit comes down in the form of tongues of fire. And then, of course, you've got the Exodus event where you've got the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire leading the people. So the Holy Spirit is depicted here in the fire that consumes the sacrifice. And since God is love, at Calvary with Jesus Christ, right, the Holy Spirit accepts the sacrifice of Jesus in a purity of fiery, burning love for our sakes, that we might participate in that love. So there's where you see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, here in Calvary of the Old Testament. Abraham is God, Isaac is Jesus, and then the fire of the sacrifice is the Holy Spirit, okay? So that's number two. Number three, uh, the son, of course, that's Isaac, as well as Jesus, carries the wood of the sacrifice on his own shoulders. We talked about this before here. This is really important. 
So Isaac carries the wood of the, the firewood on his shoulders, just as Jesus carries the wood of the cross on his own shoulders. And then that means that Isaac was old enough to cooperate. Because <laughs> remember, if at any point Isaac didn't want to cooperate in this sacrifice, it would be easy for him just to punch dad in the nose and go running for the hills if he didn't want to be sacrificed. But and this brings us here to number four. The son, both Isaac and Jesus, freely cooperate and submits to the father's will. That's crucial here. Isaac and Jesus allow themselves to be bound and they offer themselves up as a sacrifice. So again, this is Isaac's test of faith too. Everyone always focuses on Abraham and that's true. God says to Abraham, offer up your only beloved son as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. And he does this, but Isaac is old enough to fight if he wanted to, but he doesn't fight. So he cooperates, allowing himself to be sacrificed, trusting in God's promises. That's a big deal. This is Isaac's test of faith. And in fact, as we're going to see in our future lesson on Isaac, he doesn't really have any other major tests of faith like other patriarchs do because this is his test of faith. He passes the test just as Abraham did. So what that means then is that Isaac is both priest and victim, right? He offers himself up as a victim in cooperation with Abraham and in obedience to, God, to God's uh, command. Just like Jesus is also priest and victim when he offers himself up on the cross in obedience to the Father's command, all right? So number five, both Isaac and Jesus are in their 30s. This is based on Jewish tradition here. Uh, one particular rabbinic tradition said that Isaac was specifically 37 years old. And the reason for that is here in your footnote, you can check uh, one of the books by Victor Hamilton. Basically, just to summarize this here really quickly, there was this Jewish tradition that um, Sarah was 90. That's not, that's the scripture. Sarah was 90 when Isaac was born. She was 20, 127 when um, she died. So that's 37 years of, of, he was 37 years old when Sarah died. Well, the Jewish uh, rabbinic tradition here is that uh, she died of a broken heart when Abraham told her, I'm going to go offer uh, Isaac as a sacrifice in obedience to God. So she, as she's kind of watching them walk off into the horizon, she dies of a broken heart. That's one of the reasons why they say that Isaac was 37 years old. I tend to not believe that. That's just speculation because at this point in the game, Sarah has made her arc and her journey. She has faith. And, and Sarah, in many respects, is a type of Mary. Okay, So the fact that Sarah dies not believing in God's promises is not necessarily, I think, the best way to look at that. But that's just conjecture. But in any case, the rabbinic tradition says 37, and that's the reason why. Okay, But obviously, Jesus is 30 as well. Okay, So they're both in their 30s. One last point on that. Isaac had to have been a strong man, as we said, if he's carrying the wood of the sacrifice on his back. That's a lot of wood. It takes a lot of wood to burn a lamb, a ram, a human person. It's not just a couple of twigs back there. He must have been young and strong in order to carry it. So 30s make total sense. All right, uh, number six. Uh, the ram's head is caught in a thicket of thorns, which is a prefigurement, a foreshadowing of Jesus' crowning with thorns. Number seven. Number seven and number eight here in the notes kind of go together, so stick with me here. Number seven is when Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb. Remember, that could also be translated and understood very easily and defensively. God will provide himself as the lamb. He'll provide himself the lamb, like he's the one who's going to do it, but also he's going to do it and it will be himself. And obviously both are true, okay? So when Abraham says, God or the Lord will provide, and it's here in your notes, that's literally Yahweh Jairah or Yairah, okay? The Lord will provide. Provide what? The lamb. 
But it's interesting here is that um, after this whole story concludes, as you remember, a ram is provided, not a lamb. So is Abraham wrong in this prophecy? Did God not provide a lamb? Well, no, he did provide a ram because he's going to fulfill the prophecy later on with Jesus Christ. In order to accomplish this covenant oath that was sworn, as we saw, that all nations, the, the world's uh, families, of the, the families of the world will be blessed through Abraham, it's going to be given through the offering of this lamb. But we're not ready for that yet. It's not until, obviously, Jesus Christ in the New Testament uh, where the lamb is being identified. This is, if you flip the page in your notes, in John chapter 1, verse 29 and 36, very famously, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is what they've been waiting for all along. This is what the sacrifices, the tamid, the perpetual sacrifice, is kind of a remembrance of, waiting for God to provide the Lamb. And then finally, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb. So when Abraham says, the Lord Yahweh will provide Yahweh Yairah. He's going to provide the lamb. That refers to Jesus, as we see in John chapter 1. Related to this is point number 8 in your notes. In the same way, Abraham didn't say just the Lord will provide. He says, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. What mount is this? The mount is Jerusalem. All right, It's the same place as Mount Moriah which was Salem at the time. We talked about Melchizedek, right? So we know this very clearly from the biblical text itself. So refresher in Genesis 22:2, God says, take your son, your only begotten son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there. Well, fast forward to 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, and it's very clear. It says Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Okay, so it's the same mountain chain here. And that's what's so mind-blowing is that the same exact location that Abraham offered up Isaac is the same place where Jesus is going to be offered up as well. And so there's another connection here when you look at Yahweh Shairah, when you add Yairah to Salem, which is what the city was at the time, what do you get but Yairusalem, Jerusalem. This is the reason or the historical development of how Salem becomes Jerusalem or Jerusalem or Jerusalem as we get. You can see the kind of development of the sound of the name here. God will provide, Yaira, pre, as, a, as a prefix to Salem, God will provide peace. That is perfectly fulfilled with Jesus. So Jerusalem literally means God will provide peace. When will he provide peace? He's going to provide peace precisely when he provides that lamb on Mount Moriah, which is Jerusalem, okay? So, and also remember, Salem is the place where Melchizedek was the righteous priest king. So all, in the previous lesson, you remember everything we talked about Melchizedek, offering up this Thanksgiving sacrifice of bread and wine there in Jerusalem, same location. So here's Jesus, the Lamb of God, offering up a, a Thanksgiving sacrifice of bread and wine before he offers himself up as priest and victim on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. It's amazing, right? So hopefully you're tracking with me with all these connections here. All right, so um, that's seven and eight, which you can see together. The Lord will provide the lamb and he'll provide it at Jerusalem. Okay, beautiful. All right, number nine here. So Abraham, as we saw, believed that God would resurrect Isaac from the dead. Okay, uh, which is exactly what happened to Jesus, of course, right? So if you go back to chapter, of, well, obviously 22, verse 1, verse 2, actually, there's the command. Take your son and offer him up where I'll show you. Three days later, the whole story goes down and then Isaac is delivered from this command. He's freed. Okay, three days after the command is given, he is freed from this um, command of death, you could call it. 
in the same way Jesus, he dies three days later. Uh, so Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Friday is always counted as day one for the Jews. On the third day, obviously, Jesus rises from the dead, literally. Okay. Uh, there's another one in here which I find extremely interesting and beautiful, which is, this is point number 10 now. In verse 17, God says to Abraham, you probably caught it before, your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. This is going to ultimately be fulfilled, initially be fulfilled with the conquest of the promised land. But you can see another connection here when you read this side by side with Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when Jesus says to Peter, the gates of Hades will never overcome the church that I'm building upon you, Peter. All right, so this is ultimately is fulfilled when all nations are going to be blessed through Abraham. That's fulfilled in the church, and the church will never be overcome by the gates of Hades, right? The church will have a power over the gates of the church's enemies and Jesus' enemies. That's being prefigured here when God says to Abraham, you, your descendants will possess the gate of their enemies. We're talking about the establishment of the church, all right? All right, and then there's a bonus one here. You might find this in various uh, commentaries that I have as well, and that's the presence of the donkey. <laughs> it's got a little bonus one for you. You know, you got a donkey present in the story of Isaac and Abraham going up to Mount Moriah, and then Jesus rides a donkey on um, Holy Saturday and the triumphal entry, okay, into Jerusalem as well. That's a little, I, I included it here because you're going to find it in a, in a couple different texts, but um, it's a little bit more speculative because Jesus did ride the donkey into Jerusalem, but I'm not so sure that Isaac rode the donkey to Salem or to the mountain chain of Moriah. If anyone rode the donkey, it would probably be Abraham as a father who's in his 130s. And even if Abraham didn't walk, he probably put all the wood uh, on, on the donkey. So in any case, I included that for you. But you can see here, I kind of the way I worked it, certainly 10 points of typology between the Calvary of the Old Testament and the Calvary of the New Testament. How the beautiful offering of Jesus Christ for the salvation of the sins of humanity, which becomes the worldwide blessing, right, is pre-enacted here with Abraham and Isaac. Hi, I'm Dr. Nick. Thank you so much for watching this clip. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did and you want to access the entire lesson and the entire course, come visit us over at scriptureandtradition.com and join our community of students. You'll be able to access all of my courses in the audio library. Plus, you'll be able to access my live courses whenever I teach a new topic on scripture or the Catholic faith. God bless you.